Brandon, welcome to MLSD. It's an absolute honor to have you on. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I love your podcast. Um, I enjoy listening on the other end. I enjoy the thoughtful lines of questioning and the breadth of topics. And so when you reached out, I, I couldn't say no. I mean, I was at Microsoft at a similar time to you, Brandon, and um, just just for the folks at home, Brandon was an absolute legend internally at Microsoft. He was very, very high up. He was one of the the biggest names in machine learning, and, and just to have you on here now means a lot to me. So yeah, it's, it's great to have you on, Brandon. As you were, you were just getting on to RLHF, which is um, you know essentially modeling it as an agent problem, and you can think of trajectories over words as being a little bit analogous to a, a robot going around a maze. And you can have a, a reward model, which can be supervised by humans and even bootstrap. So you can even kind of like, you know, sparsify and predict what, what the humans say. But it, it's, it's mind-blowingly fascinating. And I guess um, I've got so many questions about this, but maybe the first question is cynically, I think of it a little bit like um, not not a database system, because of course it's not a database system, but it's it's an approximate diffused form of information retrieval, I suppose, um, because I, I, I like to cynically think of neural networks as being, a, you know, not not quite a hash table, but a little bit similar to a locality sensitive hashing table. And, and then there's this question of, well, you get all of these incredible or apparently incredible emergent abilities like reasoning. Uh, you can ask it logic questions and it appears to be doing reasoning. Yet, as you were just saying, we strip it back to the nuts and bolts and when it's just matrix multiplications and stuff like that. So so how, how do you kind of juxtapose those two views? Um, th- this is why I enjoyed stripping it down, because it became clear that what it is capable of is uh, regurgitating patterns that are either something that has seen or similar or uh, like mishmashes of things like it has seen in the past. Um, and you, and it's a great illustration of how far you can get with this. Um, you know, (laughs) as a side note, uh, you know, if you're writing college essays, you can get really good grades by regurgitating things that you have read or other people have said. And so ChatGPT is great at writing college essays. Like these historical events have been written about for decades or centuries and there's a lot of text to learn from there and yeah you can you can make beautiful text that that does all this and it shines a light on some things that we've considered to be intelligence that at least maybe don't require it can be mimicked without it um but it also raises a red flag where it's like you know if we're expecting it to reason about a novel situation then we should be suspicious of anything that it says. Like it doesn't have a informational basis to be able to weigh in on what we should do on something that's never happened before. And it, the way it's structured, it will give a very convincing sounding answer. If it's been carefully engineered, it will decline to answer unless you can cleverly circumvent that those guardrails. Um, but whatever the case, it's not going to give you uh, a reasoned answer. It might accidentally give you the right answer, especially if it's similar enough to things that it's seen or heard in the past. But, you know, that's a roll of the dice. A um, great example is uh, when you're using it to write code. 
Um, writing code is a great use case because the language for writing, say, like a Python script is very much more restricted than speaking in English. There's only so many things you can do and say. Um, and there's a lot of examples to try on, to train on, and you can give it a prompt and it can do a very reasonable job of fleshing it out. But it doesn't know anything about what you are trying to accomplish with your Python code. And if it is something that no one's done before, which when you boil it down to the details, most of the time what we're doing is at least a little bit different, then you should double check what it tells you because it won't know and it won't know that it doesn't know, but it will confidently tell you like you should do this. Um, if you're writing boilerplate code, it's so good for that. I've heard so many people say like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in this language. I'm not very familiar with it. I went to start a thing and it wrote me some amazing boilerplate. I was able to go and fill it back in. Um, but uh, I've also heard a lot of stories of like, yeah, I was writing it to do a thing and it gave me some great code and I had to go back with a magnifying glass and find a subtle bug that it introduced because I realized that what I was doing was just different enough that it didn't represent that in its, in its options. So um, yeah, that's the, I would not expect it to do reasoning. You know, these, these transformers, they do actually, um, they extrapolate. So, um, I mean, I've, I've um, made some content about this and, and it, the definition of interpolation is actually surprisingly vague in high dimensions. So they, they are extrapolating. And, and you could say that GPT has this combinatorial creativity, but it doesn't have, you know, inventive creativity. So there's this vague distinction between the two. And you could also argue that so many things just in our day-to-day -day existence aren't particularly novel. And with code, for example, it, it does a very good job. And, um, you know, it does very good code. I mean, I, I often joke that I spend 10 times as much uh, as long debugging the code now because there's some problem that it's introduced. It just It's a false economy. I, I think if you're if you're doing anything innovative, so I was just doing a, uh, an augmented reality startup company, and I did actually find that many of the things I wanted to do with GPT were were quite novel, and it would struggle on, and and in a sense, as we were saying earlier, that you almost want to use GPT as as a yardstick that if GPT is helpful, then you're probably not doing anything particularly intelligent, and and you should kind of change your profession. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm uh, I'm filtering out a lot of snark right now, but I love that <laughs> characterization. Um, it's a it's almost an extension of the um, you know if autocomplete suggests you should use this word, then maybe consider using a, a different one. Think about what you mean and make sure that's really what you mean. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, if if a, if a GPT can like meet all of your needs, then maybe you're not tackling something worthy of your capabilities or something that, you know, it really is a task that is not worth worrying about too hard because someone else is going to come along and automate it with, with a GPT. So um, I think that's a, a wonderful yardstick. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I don't mind the cynical take that we're all GPTs. And and I believe we are after reading, you know, some neuroscience stuff, you know, our, our brains are just basically simulators. We, we live in a hallucination. Essentially, we confabulate everything. But but the difference is agency, you know, like we 
we can kind of even though we actually ironically don't express agency most of the time because we're caught in the orbit of other things but in 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 principle we're actually building our own world models and and we experience the world according to our own models which is and and it might be very different to the way you experience the world because you've built different models and that feels very gratifying and it feels like I'm sequestering agency when I just kind of do what the, what the, the GPT model in the cloud tells me what to do yeah. When I hear agency, I think actions. Like I am I am doing a thing, whether that's physically doing it or making a plan. Um, I am aware that I'm inter interacting with the world. A piece that could elevate uh, an LLM to the next level is the words that it creates. Like words are choosing a word is also an action. Someone may read those words. They may do something different. It will have an effect in the world when the model gets to the place where it can say hey i said these words and somehow through some mechanism i was able to sense some impact of them that's the loop that could close and make that a true agent an interactive a thing that could learn that could adapt that could be creative and learn what those words mean and signify more so than their statistical frequency of a co-occurrence. Just, just a couple of final thoughts on transformers. So how do you think about their fundamental limitations? Um, I mean, we, we used to cite the Chomsky hierarchy quite a bit, which is to say that, you know, they, they can't um, they can't recognize recursively enumerable languages, so they can't sort of um, they, they, they can't support recursion beyond a certain depth because they have a fixed um, amount of computation, you know, the number of layers is, is fixed, if, if you like. And I, I guess like the juxtaposition there is that, isn't it interesting that these are basically very limited, they're just matrix multiplications, and there are many computations that they just demonstrably can't do, yet it doesn't seem to be a problem. One source of limitations that I'm, I'm biased toward, uh, you know, being uh, an engineer spending so much time based in the physical world, the representation at the lowest level of the data going in will always be a, a determining factor. So it's common to use um, byte pair encoding to, yeah. to learn what you can think of it as it like builds up words, letters that happen to occur together often. Um, and, you know, depending on how much you're willing to throw at it, you can build up, you know, common sequences of two or three words. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, but that's what you're working with. That's the raw material. So it can only ever get sequences of characters. Um, and it, I mean, it can be all kinds of characters. It can be emojis. It can be characters with, with any diacriticals or in any language or any script. But it's only characters. It will never know what something smells like, what something sounds like, what something feels like. Um, it It won't have any of these sensations. And so it won't be able to, to relate them. It won't be able to tie the name of the word orange to the color, to the fruit, to any metaphorical abstractions we have associated with it, unless it's explicitly represented in text, which is um, a, just a very narrow drinking straw through which to see all this, like the thinnest veneer on experience that we humans have that, you know, 
animals and pre-language like humans have been navigating brilliantly for a very long time without. Um, but somehow we've elevated this. It's almost like chess is the highest form of reasoning and the highest form of logic. Um, now we're focused on language as like the the expression of intelligence, when really it's just like the very thin crust on everything that we do. So if I were going to extend them, I would I would include other sequences of other types of inputs. Yeah, um, so true. Uh, but 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 it's a paradox as well. So I agree with you that um, language is about simulation, sharing and conditioning. So when I say things, I'm kind of conditioning your, your sim simulator, which is that the, the content of the semantics isn't really in the words that I speak. I'm just kind of like shaping how you simulate the world. And I really resonated with what you said about, I call it the missing information problem, which is that most of the things we mean, we don't even say. And code is a great example of this. Um, so the reason why, if you know, like I just had a, an AI startup, you know, I could, I could put all the code out on the internet and people might be horrified at doing that. Oh, that's our intellectual property. You can't do that. The, the reason why code has no value is because like the, the the mental model is is a mimetic thing in the brains of the developers. There's actually surprisingly little semantic information or content in the code. Like there's a complete divorce of that. And I can see that you're smiling and, and, and you agree with that. And yeah, I mean, part of the efficiency of language is that it, it's it's like a it's an organism. It's evolved to be learnable by children and it's evolved to be very efficient. So we, you know, we, we miss out a lot of meaning and a lot of meaning is is contextual. But then then the double whammy paradox kicks in. So language models, they they ignore all of the dynamics, all of the history, all of the causal chaining and so on, and and they just spew out this autocomplete. And there are so many examples of where people have said it has a theory of mind. And it, it knows what you're thinking and, and it, it can infer in some cases these semantic missing bits of information. And it's just utterly bizarre because from my perspective, it's, it's created a, a whole bunch of people who almost have this religious belief in the capability of, of language models. <laughs> it's so true. I, I recently published an unsupervised learning algorithm that I've been uh, toying around with for, I don't know, 10 years. Um, and the code itself is a few hundred lines. Um, but I had to write an 11 page document to go with it to explain why. <laughs> and how like what it what it means because yeah the code itself is like i don't know this and even the code itself is this large fraction of it was comments um but uh one thing that humans are uh remarkably good at is uh, imbuing things with a with a an agency so yeah. I've had cars before that had entire personalities. They had names. On some days they were like difficult to start because they were being stubborn. And on other days they just kind of like helped smooth me through my day because I knew I was having a hard day. And I, I know that this is all in my head, but it felt real. And a car, literally, you can strip it down to its nuts and bolts and see that there's nothing there that has personality. Um, but but it feels like it does. Now, like throw that into a black box and, you know, make it vastly more complex. And it's, you have to, even a savvy researcher has to actively fight the impulse to anthropomorphize and assign a personality to this thing. So, you know, 
I see how that happens. I respect it, which is one of the reasons it was worth it to go through the exercise of stripping it down to the nuts and bolts to, to convince myself that there was no, nothing, no ghost in the machine. Um, it's just a machine, an excellent and clever machine, but not, not in the sense that it, that, uh, it might be, might be assumed to be most of the time. I know I've, I've heard so many interesting takes on this. Some people say that it's a, a mimetic intelligence. So, you know, like it's, it's actually, it exists in the brains of us and, and we share information from GPT on the internet and GPT can now go and find that information. It's almost like, you know, like it's a little bit like the Chinese room, you know, when you say, well, where is the understanding? You know, is it in the room? Is it in the head of John Searle in the room? And, and in a sense, you can kind of, um, I, I know it sounds weird, but I don't mind the idea that it just extends the cognitive nexus of, of, of what's already there. I don't like the idea that it itself is a super intelligence and, and can do all of these things. I, I think it's just become an extension of, of our cognitive apparatus. I was speaking with yeah. Jay Alomar um, about a month ago or so, and he has a, a fairly similar style to you in, in, in the sense of just incredible at teaching because um, loads of your stuff is, is on YouTube actually from the time. So folks can can check that out and I'll put it in the video description. But you just have an incredible style of, of pedagogy, I think. And, and you actually said this to me the other day that you like to kind of take things down to the nuts and bolts and really understand things from fundamental um, first principles. Uh, thank you. It And it does very much grow out of um, I'm the cycle is I'm very confused about something, which is like a an itch in my brain. I have to figure out how it works. There's no existing explanation that reaches me. It's, it's higher than I would like. So I dig through and I find that. And then I try to write the explanation that I wish that I had when I was starting out. Um, and I, and I think that's my advantage is that I don't start out knowing very much. So it's still recent. The pain of not knowing how something works is still pretty recent. So I can, uh, uh, put it in those terms. So can you tell us about your ML school where, where you've written up a whole bunch of tutorials about different um, areas in, in ML? Uh, yes. Um, so there is a collection of video courses that step through some of these topics. Um, some of them are of a format like how such and such works. And it goes through some examples, very light on the math and the details. Um, and then there are others where, you know, we're going to implement a uh, neural network framework from scratch. And we start from the very basics and line by line, talk about the Python, how it works. And we build our very own neural network and we use it to do things like recognize images and uh, create embeddings and things like that. Um, all of it, like I said, is selfishly done based on what I was curious about at the time. In retrospect, it holds together like a curriculum, but it was, did not grow. It was much more organic than that. Um, and then in concert with that, there are also a series of blog posts. For instance, uh, when I was digging into Transformers a couple of years ago, again, didn't know how they worked and was desperate to find out, uh, figured it out in a way that made sense to me. And I put it in a blog post instead of a video that's in that as well. So now if you go to e2eml.school, there is what looks like an organized curriculum of material, but really is a hodgepodge of all of the things that uh, I've, I've been trying to keep track of and teaching myself. And luckily, a lot of other folks have found it helpful. Um, the material is hosted on uh, 
like a teachable.com is a, a e-learning platform. And I think to date I've had around 14, 15,000 students uh, sign up for that. And due to the generous donations of a few to pay for hosting costs, it is free to anyone who wants to go, you know, sign up and poke around and, and start their own journey or take their own journey to the next level. Just understanding how all the nuts and bolts of machine learning fit together. Beautiful. Now, um, I know you spend some time at iRobot and uh, my friend Matthew Salvaris went there as well from Microsoft. I don't know if you know Matthew. He's, he's, a, he's a lovely guy. I know guy. him quite well, yes. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a fantastic. He's actually been on on MLST a couple of times, but um, yeah, he's he's a he's a really cool guy. But um, I've I've been through a similar kind of journey myself in the sense that we learned machine learning, and it's a bit weird, isn't it? Because we're kind of doing inference once, so we're we're learning this statistical relationship between training data. You know, it's almost like a static training log, and and now we just call this static function. You know, in the future. And in the real world, it's it's completely different. You know, you're in this large dynamical system where you have agential things that have their own directedness and they're continuously kind of embedding themselves or synchronizing themselves with the environment and they're sampling relevant information and they're kind of continuously doing inference. So they're doing active inference and sensing. And it's just this broad system and, and at a high enough resolution, it almost becomes alive. You know, actually a lot of um, biologists like this guy, Philip Ball, who's, you know, talking about how life works. Um, a lot of biologists are now starting to think like physicists and they're just talking about dynamical systems and you know they think of agents as being thermodynamically distinct and they're using lots of language from physics to understand things. And I'm kind of Im enmeshing myself in this new way of thinking and then I'm thinking that's completely different to machine learning, isn't it? I mean, robotics is just an, an entirely different universe. Um, yes, and I'm really pleased that we're taking it in this direction. So. Uh, let's see, a little bit of a tangent. I love, when I love an idea, I, I like to try and break it. I like to try and find its limits because that helps me know where to expand it, how to strengthen it, where to grow it. So some of the limits of traditional supervised learning is that it assumes that the world's not changing. I look back on my training data. I it, My predictions are only good as long as the future continues to look like the past. As soon as that changes, then I have to retrain the model and start over. Um, that's a very blunt tool for solving a problem of a changing environment. Um, the other thing that breaks is uh, any kind of curve fitting or prediction is makes the implicit assumption that I'm observing something through a pane of glass. In practice, in business, you turn around and you observe a trend and then you try to adjust it. You try to make the curve go upward and to the right faster or to uh, you know bring a number down or to bring a number up. As soon as you close that loop and take the thing you predicted and use that to drive a decision, you've thrown yourself into this world. You're now part of the system that you're trying and your model therefore is, is inadequate because it doesn't have a representation of you and what you're doing. So as soon as you take an action, you break your model. <laughs> and so this is like one of like the biggest uh, fundamental fallacies or flaws of, of us using analytics to make decisions. It's like, okay, we just, we just broke all of our predictions by acting on them. Um, now, the exception to that is a reinforcement learning approach, or I should say any kind of online adaptive, where each new data point gets incorporated into the model 
and where my actions are explicitly represented. So reinforcement learning has both of those things. So uh, I'm betraying my, my biases here, but reinforcement learning is a great tool for starting to address questions of agency, what happens when either I or some other human or some computer program that is like taking actions is actively adapting. Um, and it's fun because this goes counter to a lot of, a lot of the foundations of the institution of machine learning. Um, it's slow. It requires getting an action and then uh, seeing what happened and then going back and doing it again. So you're not going to do this a trillion times a second or parallelize it across a bunch of computers. It doesn't lend itself very well to matrix multiplication, which our entire computing infrastructure is built on. <laughs> like if you look at um, a lot of papers like from machine learning re research in general, but you know, go to Neurips and it is uh, the, not all, but the vast majority are, hey, here's an interesting thing. And here's how we beat it into submission so that we could run it on GPUs. Um, and, uh, and reinforcement learning just, you, you can, and there are plenty of folks who do, but it's always awkward and you always lose something important. Um, so that's another reason that reinforcement learning is fascinating to me. It's, uh, has a little bit of a uh, countercultural, like almost a democratization element. Cause a lot of this stuff, it's like, it's so slow that you're working with what amounts to small data, which is also countercultural for the broader machine learning community. And it's a lot of the algorithms are, you know, fast enough then that you can run them on the edge. You can run them on your phone. You can run them on your laptop and uh, you can experiment with them locally. And I just love that because it gets, powerful tools and the ability to explore things into the hands of lots and lots of people. Like all of a sudden you don't have to have a farm of GPUs to get interesting results. So that makes me happy. Yeah. So th there are so many things for us to unpick here, but I, I think, you know, we started by saying th the world has these complex functional dynamics and it's more complex than we could have ever understand. And actually when we understand things we tend to partition them up using cognitive priors that we have so even an agent you could argue is is a cognitive prior so we're trying to make sense of the world around us and when we talk about functionalism it's this idea that we can take things that exist in the world and all we need to do is represent them in a computer and we kind of take away some of the complexity because we model them as what they do rather than what they are so we can take this dynamical system we can represent things as agents and we can make them do this kind of active inference or you know continually taking in data and updating their statistical models and we're kind of building the system at the low level and we think that when these agents interact with each other and share information with the environment that some kind of interesting complexity and dynamics will emerge and we think that those dynamics will have the characteristics that we want to capture from the real world but it feels a bit like alchemy doesn't it it feels like there's so much that could go wrong in this process i uh, absolutely agreed um part of the shoehorning process that i mentioned is because reinforcement learning is so slow um there's a solution to that is, well, what if I build, like you alluded to, a high quality simulation and I have this agent going in simulation as opposed to attached to something in the physical world, then I can speed it up as fast as I want. I can have a million of these running in parallel. I can learn really quickly. Um, 
but there's always uh, there's always a gap. Um, so uh, what drove this home for me, like very early in my research career, I coded up in MATLAB a simulation of a, a seven degree of freedom robot arm, segmented arm with multiple joints and a little gripper on the end. And it's very simple world was there was something like a salt shaker and it had to reach and its goal was to just grab the salt shaker and pick it up. Um, and so I set it up with a, a simple reinforcement learning algorithm behind it. And just it just started going and trying to do this again and again. Um, I did a common cheat scaffolding, which is basically first I start it very close to the goal so it can stumble onto the solution. And then once it does that reliably, I start it further and further back so it can like build a more complex pattern to, to get there. Um, and then I let it run <coughs> over the weekend and I came back and checked it. And it turned out that the robot very cleverly had figured out that because of my poor simulation coding, it could reach into the table some amount before the weak stiffness of the table prevented it and use that as a guide to come up under the salt shaker. And it was far more repeatable than reaching through space. And so, yes, it solved the problem, but no, it wouldn't be relevant to anything I wanted to do in the physical world. Um, that uh, when you talk to people who work on simulations to train, say self-driving cars or robot arms that solve Rubik's cubes, um, the amount of effort that goes into trying to narrow that gap is tremendous. And I have enormous respect for the folks doing that work. Um, <clears throat> it is still, I've, I've never seen it vanish completely. The real world will always surprise us. So I'm betraying another bias here, which is for actual physical robot hardware. Um, so my, my degree is not in computer science, it's in mechanical engineering. So I grew up working on cars and taking apart blow dryers and using the motors to build things and fixing bicycles and things like that. And uh, the real world defies uh, being abstracted away. Um, no matter when you think you've got a really good representation of it, there's always another level down. I don't have to explain this to a physicist, but um, it is to a computer scientist. This can be a revelation. Beautiful. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get into um, some of the externalist accounts of um, cognition in, in a bit. So things like an embodiment and, and um, social embedding. But just coming back to, to what you were saying before. So we have a problem in, in machine learning in general, and that is, if you think about it, the way we train these models are quite um, brittle and simplistic. We use stochastic gradient descent, and we kind of construct inductive priors in, in, in a certain way to cajole the system to learn the right kind of correlation, because there's a, a spectrum of correlations, and almost all of them are spurious. Almost all of them will have the model do um, sometimes the right thing for the wrong reasons, or just sometimes the wrong thing completely. Um, so you're alluding to um, this kind of reward hacking and some of the reward shaping and some of the tricks we do in in reinforcement learning to try and make the thing, you know, behave in, in the way that we want to. Can you talk to that a little bit? In my view, the promise of the, the, the grand algorithm is something where uh, we can throw a problem at it and it figures things out. Like we don't have to neatly shape it. It can just handle it. Um, in, we're not there yet. In reality, there is always some uh, place where a human has to get in, use 
all of their cleverness and intuition and luck and trial and error. And uh, we euphemistically call this engineering. So there's some amount of engineering. Um, in the case of reinforcement learning, it takes the form of reward shaping, where you create an agent, you give it a reward, something that seems totally normal, like, I don't know, if it's a simulated car, great, drive from your home to the hospital as fast as possible. And the agent learns how to do that. And in the process, like it runs over 100 pedestrians. And you're like, oh, I maybe didn't include everything I cared about in the reward. And then you go back and you adjust the reward. Okay, but don't hit any pedestrians. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, there's something that, you know, accidentally got flagged as a pedestrian in the middle of the road and it sat there forever. It's like, oh, okay, uh, some other strategy. Like, and you're always like, closing this circle, you're pretending you're solving a general problem, but really you're just inserting yourself into the system and the human brain is the one solving the general problem. With uh, things like uh, a lot of machine learning problems, this takes the form of feature engineering, where I have some data, maybe it's a table, and I want to predict something and I run my model on it, maybe, you know, like a gradient boosted decision tree, and it's like, oh, I don't quite get an answer that I like, or maybe it deviates from reality a lot. It's like, okay, well, what if I looked at the, the difference of two of my features as an input? And I'll try that. Or what if I looked at the rate of change of one of my features? Or what if I looked at a new data source? Or somehow the product of two of my features going in, or some more complicated function of them. And you go through this process until you find the right features, and then sure enough, the right answer comes out. So there is a uh, there's someone behind the curtain pulling on the pulls. There is, uh, you know, in the Mechanical Turk, there is a small person hidden in the box, like doing the, doing the tricks for us to see. But the goal is still out there. It's so compelling. It's like, well, if we could just get the right priors, the right method, then we could have this thing figure out how to figure out how to solve all these problems. And what makes this so compelling is that um, every single human being is an existence proof that this is possible. <laughs> like we, we are systems that do this and it happens a billion times a day. Um, and, but it's just tantalizing. Like it's just, uh, just taunting us. Like we haven't been able to figure out, figure it out yet. Um, and I think that's why biologically inspired algorithms are so compelling as well. It's like, well, you know, animals are doing it. My dog is doing it. Like, why can't I get a robot to be as smart as my dog? I know there's always this question of what level of resolution is required to create this kind of biomimetic intelligence. And a lot of it is um, kind of going beyond the basic correlations and um, sort of reproducing some of the causal chains that exist in the dynamics in, in the real world and doing that to sufficient resolution, you know, to, to allow some of these behaviors to emerge. And, and even then, um, when you look at dynamical systems, it, it has all sorts of interesting properties like open-endedness and um, teleology as well. We'll get to that in a minute. But this idea that you have all of these pockets of dynamics that are trying different things and things that work kind of persist and get discovered by other people. So to a certain extent, it's not just pure serendipity. As an agent, if you discover a really interesting technique to do something, you might just be sampling it from your local environment in a apparently serendipitous process. But the reason it was there in the first place was because it works and it's kind of held itself over time. So it's just very, very complex, isn't it? Um, 
Absolutely. Uh, it is, um, it's understandable that, that trying to build a general problem solver is a, is a fun and academically and intellectually interesting exercise. And, uh, you make a good point that, you know, maybe general problem solver is the entire history of, of the an animals and the human race. Like, like it's, it's a big system to do that. Um, the philosophy of, you know, what's possible and, and what is intelligence is fun. It's especially fun to do after a couple of drinks. Um, it can get circular really quickly. Uh, for me, I, I, um, like I said, I, I like things concrete. I like to be able to have a, a picture, actually a diagram of them in my head, like what, how things fit together. And when things get slippery and I can't get them to like take shape and fit together and answer a yes or no question, I, I feel less comfortable, less grounded. Um, when it comes to talking about intelligence, I really like uh, mechanistic demonstrations. Like, hey, here's a task. Here's a problem to solve. Um, here's a situation to navigate. Uh, can this agent do it? Whether it's a human or an animal or a machine. And, uh, and the ones that can, like, what can we learn about how they figure out how to do that? But the, um, whether it took intelligence or not to do that is like a harder question to answer. And, and for me, not quite as interesting as like, well, how did they do it? And how can I get other, if it's an animal that did it or a human that did it, how can I get a machine to do that? So, uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about like concretely, how would I approach a certain task? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. There's this kind of no true Scotsman argument that comes up and we see it with things like the Chinese room experiment. And it's always a debate about what something is versus what it does. So you could say, well, it's not really understanding and it's not, you know, it's not really fire because a simulation of fire doesn't get hot and a simulation of a stomach doesn't actually digest. So you get into these very, very tricky philosophical um, arguments, which I still find fascinating, by the way. But um, as you say, at, at a certain point, if, if you can just demonstrate that something like a robot actually is doing the, the dishes, it's doing the washing up, it's making me coffee. Um, at some point you have to say, well, it just is doing the thing I want it to do. That's, and this is definitely my, uh, you know, my bicycle fixing background coming through. It's like, if there's, if there's a job and it's a hard job and I have a tool that solves it, then we're done. <laughs> we're done talking about that. I solved it. The robot, it does the dishes. Like it climbs around my house and, and like cleans out the gutters. It, uh, can like pay my bills for me. It can schedule me in a way that like doesn't overload me. Like it can take care of the thing. Like whether it is intelligent to do that borders really closely on like whether it has a soul. And a lot of those boil down to like, well, is it like me? Like, is it a, is it an ex did I recreate something like me or is it something totally different, which, you know, is fun, but perhaps a tad narcissistic, you know, who in the end, if it's getting the job done, maybe that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. And I guess the way I understand it is I love this externalist account of cognition. 
And that basically says that, um, you know, the, the alternative to externalism is representationalism, which is this idea that you can build an agent and the intelligence is on the inside and the agent could generalize to any environment. And the externalist account is basically that intelligence is diffused in the system and, and you, you can't really draw boundaries around particular um, things. And an example of that is as an agent, you have to kind of become correlated with your environment. You have to sample information, you know, because the history is important. So you need to kind of enmesh yourself for a significant amount of time before you can start expressing agency, which is to say before you can start commanding and shaping the environment around you. So just to kind of use that analogy to the coffee making robot, it feels a bit like it's cheating to say, well, I can just train a, a robot on some simulated data and I can just drop it into any kitchen and it will just auto magically build, you know, make coffee for me. I mean, if that were possible, I think it's fascinating because it means the robot would have to have an incredibly high fidelity model of, of, of the, the outside world. Yeah. Um, and this is uh, the topic of, of how, like, most of the things I'm able to do, I'm able to do because I've done them before. Or I've done something that's close enough that I can, like, draw the dotted line and say, I've done something like this, so I can follow similar steps. The drawing of the dotted line is fascinating to me because... That's something that humans do well and computers still really struggle with. Um, that's the goal in my mind of abstraction, to be able to take something that is like, I, I've had this simulation of making coffee. I'm now in a new physical kitchen. The coffee mugs are a different color. It's like, I have no idea what to do. Like I've never seen these mugs before. Um, how do you get to where it's like, okay, they're a different color and they don't have handles. Um, and they're, you know, maybe they're square or heart-shaped or something. Um, but I still know how to, like, I can see based on my experience that they can hold liquid and I can figure out how to make them work. Um, that process is is something that I think is worthy of pursuing. Um, and there's a couple of ways to go about it. The um, one, one is to feed it just a massive amount of training data. So the kind of like the uh, large language model approach of, well, if we can just find some data set that is just enormous and we can hoover it all up and somehow pack it into a model, you know, when you have a quadrillion parameters in your model, like maybe you're representing it, maybe you're memorizing, but regardless, like the data's in there in some form. And then when someone like says, okay, make coffee, you're like, well, I have 10 million examples of making coffee in my brain and one of them used this exact coffee maker and this exact mug and this exact blend. So I know exactly what to do. And then uh, another is to say like, well, uh, I've done something very similar so I can map it. And then there's a, a kind of a even more advanced, which is to say, well, I kind of know where I want to get um, and I might make a couple of wrong steps, but I have some reasonable guesses about how to proceed. So I'll go until I, I sense I'm deviating and then backtrack and then try again. And then in this way, kind of like cutting a new path through the, you know, the trackless wilderness that is the space of everything that you could do and figuring out through trial and error. Um, that process is fascinating. And then, of course, it has a brand new experience that it created that no other robot or agent in the history of the world has ever had. And it has that in its memory and it can refer to that in the future. Um, arguably, you know, that's a mechanism for something you'd call intelligence. It's like it is actually actively 
creating its own new experiences with the world and cataloging them in such a way that it can use them in the future. Yeah, I 100% agree. So you're describing this kind of active sensing, active inference, even niche construction in the real world, because you know that the agent is actually affecting the environment around it. But um, a lot of intelligence is rather than the first thing you said, which is basically memorizing everything that could possibly happen. It's almost about having not necessarily a blank slate, but just the ability to explore your environment and um, having really robust representations of things, you know, as we humans do, we, we have many many different senses and we can recognize objects by their touch and by their smell and and how they look from different angles and so on so we could explore a kitchen and we could almost create a novel skill program because if you think about it the way we traverse our environment there's this exponential blow up or i mean if you might if you modeled it as a kind of um uh, a partially observable Markov decision process. I mean, like, you know, we're, we're talking, it, it's 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 bigger than there are atoms in the universe. It, it's insane. So so we almost need to construct robots with the kind of agency to discover, you know, obviously there's this bias, bias ferrance trade-off. You know, we need to we need to place some guardrails there, but they, they almost need to produce the skill programs in every situation. You and I have never had this conversation before. You know, this this exact visual and audio input is novel to both of us. Somehow we're both <laughs> navigating it, <laughs> both of our whatever it is, our internal large language models and, and such. And uh, yes, that's what fascinates me in the circling back to in the space of all the things you could be curious about and explore and, and investigate. Um, when a, when a machine does stuff, it doesn't even have to be alive. It doesn't have to be intelligent. But when it does stuff that I don't totally understand why, something about that thrills me. And so that like that drives me to to investigate this and to play with this. Um, and that capability to try things and to have it be complex enough that, you know, I don't know why exactly it's doing what it's doing, um, which is not a, not a very high bar. Um, but, uh, and then to see it get better over time, um, there's something about that that's almost magical. And, uh, so enabling a machine to do that, figuring out a, a recipe or a method, an algorithm that can let it do that is, I find extremely compelling. Yeah, again, music to my ears that this is beautiful. So um, we're describing this exciting future where there is high agency. We we have truly autonomous things and they are almost kind of constructing this this web of, of intelligence. And there'll be all sorts of things we can discuss about how they mimetically share information and simulations between them and so on. But the, the one kind of thing that I want to get to is, as you were saying before, there's this biospherence trade-off. And um, essentially what that's saying is there's this approximation class of functions that actually generalize in the way you want to. And there's a kind of trade-off between, well, you know, I can make that class of functions smaller, but, you know, I might be introducing approximation error or I might be cursed by dimensionality or I might be cursed by other things. So we, we construct all of this stuff and then we still have these agents that are just kind of doing what they want to do, right? And this is teleology. This is kind of saying what's the directedness of the agent and how do we align the agent's behavior with what we want it to do? And in reinforcement learning, there's, there's a few methods of doing this. So there's constructing a reward function and there's also things like learning the reward function and, you know, inverse reinforcement learning and, and, and stuff stuff like that. But the thing that really interests me is it seems on the surface like it's just being told what to do. 
and Richard Sutton talks about reward is enough. And but you could think about think about it quite creatively and, and say, well, it has intrinsic motivation. So in service of this end reward, you can kind of guide it to do things which are instrumental to the end reward. But the end reward doesn't necessarily kind of stop it from doing the things you want it to do. And the other the other view of teleology, which I think we'll get to after that, is is um, that it might be emergent in, in some way as it is in the physical world. But let's just do reinforcement learning first. So how do you think about that reward function? Um so this is something I have spent time thinking about. I, um, one of my latest explorations is, uh, kind of, uh, it's generous to call it a book, but I'm, I'm, I'm writing words and drawing pictures and writing code. Um, but it's, a a, a kind of a, an account, call it like how to train your robot. It's like, what if I wanted to make a robot that was like approximately as, as smart as a dog? Um, and by that, I mean, they can navigate a new environment. You know, they can climb up and down stairs. They can chase balls. They can also learn to respond to visual, uh, sorry, from uh, verbal commands from me. And uh, even if they don't understand what those mean, um, like what would that even take? Because that's still a pretty high bar from where we are right now. Uh, and there is this uh, to avoid the rabbit hole of like, well, how would I design a reward function to make this behavior emerge? I thought, why don't we just skip to the end and have the reward function be like the uh, good boy, bad boy feedback. So in real time, as I am interacting with this other agent, I am acknowledging my place as another agent in this system. And I am an external source of reward for them. Um, there would probably also be some hardwired sources of reward. For instance, you know, if it's got motors, you don't want it to uh, uh, drive too high of a current and melt anything. So you can sense that and you can like something the equivalent of pain. It's like, oh, I'd like to avoid that state. Something's going wrong. Um, you can give it like some positive reward of if it's got a battery that needs to be recharged, the you know, experience of being low on battery and then getting a charge could be a positive reward. So, you know, in machine speak like that would be, that would be a pleasurable experience something it would seek out. But most of the time it would just be trying to figure out what to do to like get more like attaboys from me and fewer like, no, don't do, do less of that from me. Uh, then, then I don't have to worry about, I'm, in real time saying like, yes, no, yes, no. It's a way to elicit my feedback. It's very analogous to in current LLMs, the, what is it? Uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback, RLHF, which yes. is a, a, a signal from re in real time from humans that's used to like tweak the final stage of this larger output. So think of it like that, except that's now the foundation. That's the entire source of the learning signal. Um, and then the one other piece that's missing there that I, or in, that I speculate is curiosity. So as this robot is experiencing things, it likes to be able to predict the outcome of an action. So I'm in this state. If I move this leg, I know what my sensor state is going to be like afterwards. And if I'm in this state and I've never moved this leg before, or if I feel that I can't predict what's going to happen next, then I get a little bit of a reward for trying it and for just exploring in that way. And so with this curiosity 
also as kind of a, a gentle nudge, like a downward slope to kind of push the agent to exploring and to kind of like broadening its world model. Um, what I hypothesize is that that's enough to be able to get it to learn to do interesting things, things that I never intended, uh, a, re a reward function that I did not have to construct and that's not subject to my blind spots and my short-sightedness and <laughs> my limited vision. <laughs> um, and then in real time, I can say like, oh, like I didn't foresee that, but do that again. Or, you know, if it makes some loud noise, like a bark, I could be like, you know what, I'm, I'm good. That's, you know, I, I don't need any more of that. And it kind of like shape its behavior in real time, but more like a dance than like a, a wind up toy that you set everything just right and then let it go. Yeah, it, it's so fascinating, but also so complex in, in so many ways. So, I mean, as you were saying, um, language models, they um, are trained on the kind of the cross entropy loss, which is a form of um, divergence metric, so distribution matching. And and then in, in the, the RLHF or, or, or RL type paradigm, we're doing mode seeking. So we're kind of chopping off parts of the distribution that we're not interested in. And then, as you said, we, we could have a kind of um, um, a single actor um, doing this Pavlovian reinforcement saying, you know, don't do this and, and, and don't do that. But there are a couple of approaches here, aren't there? So I'm not sure if you're familiar with active inference, but that has um, an agent which has a set of preferences and the preferences are essentially like um, observable trajectories. And the agent tries to act to make the, the world more like its preferences. And you can kind of think of that as more of a goal orientated rather than a kind of reward or value orientated form of, of um, um, you know, um, agentialism, if, if you like. But how, how do you think about different ways of kind of crafting this agency? Um, I'm, I'm making a mental note to now go read about active inference because that's a, a oh. phrase that I was not familiar with. But it sounds highly aligned with with the. Uh... What we're talking about here, um, one, uh, we're getting to where I'm still forming my thoughts. So this is going to come out in a jumble. Okay. But um, one approach that I favor is uh, instead of just choosing actions, just twitching a motor or flipping a switch, um, you can also choose a state as a goal. It's like for no other reason other than I just want to try it. Um, I want to know what it's like to be in that place. I want to climb that mountain because it's there. Like I want to, I want to do a thing. I want to turn around just to see what happens if I turn around. And so having a state as a goal, um, the way that I'm, so I'm, I'm, you know, my hobby algorithmic work is to create models and planners and agents to try out some of these ideas. So the way I think about implementing this is I have my state action, state transitions, and I have my reward function. What if I temporarily augment my reward function with a, hey, I'm gonna give myself a little internal reward for getting to this state, and then I can try and find a way to get there using my planner. Um, and uh, my you know, speculation is that that's a fantastic way to get to know your, your inner world, and that doing it just for the heck of it is uh, really you know, a great way to, to drive exploration. There's a problem in optimization in general, which is that we tend to um, we, we we tend to uh, like use entropy heuristics, and we tend to assume things are monotonic. So even with exploration, we might have a heuristic where, let's say, a fixed amount of the time, ten percent of the time, we just do random exploration, and we it might take several steps 
um, of you know a reward going down in order for us to find something good. So and unless we're we're kind of prepared to um, completely change the methodology of, of of the agent, we might never find good solutions to things. Um, this touches on something that I I really like, which is that um, you can always construct a, a task or a world or something where one solution will will work beautifully and another less so, and then you change the task and the and the roles reverse. Um, Another reason that I get uncomfortable with talking about general intelligence, like intent, intelligence is, is good for something. Humans are smart because we're good at doing something. <laughs> we're good at surviving and, and uh, kind of like thriving in this world. Um, it just so happens. And um, when you're creating an agent, there are a ton of little decisions. Like how do you make it explore? Because if uh, exploration is a good example because you can kind of map some of those onto human behaviors. But one is to like, you said like random exploration, like, yeah, 5% of the time, I'm just going to do something that I just randomly pick from my menu of actions and try it. Um, makes sense. Like eventually you'll try everything. Turns out that's a horribly inefficient way to explore your, your world. Um, and it's not what humans do. Like, uh, if you observe at least what has been successful for us, um, in general, when humans find a good solution to something, they stick with it. So, you know, one way to model that is like, yeah, exploration is okay. Like it's not terrible. Like there might be a little bonus there, but if I have a known solution that gives me something good, then for the most part, I'm going to stick with that. Like I'm going to drive to work the same way every day. Uh, just, because I know it's work. I know it works or I know it's familiar. And the uncertainty around something else can be translated into a penalty because it is uncomfortable, apparently, for most humans to not know how something is going to go. So familiarity is also a bias that we have. When you're building an agent, you get to choose these numbers. <laughs> like you're in there with the dials. Like maybe uncertainty is is desirable and, and you'll seek out things that you don't understand well yet. Um, maybe uh, you just naturally get curious about trying a thing if you've never tried it before. And so you naturally do that. And so you essentially get to give your agents, uh, this is way over personification, but you get to give them different personalities, different uh, kind of like, senses of adventure and see how they behave in a given environment. So it's kind of fun to, uh, I'm very leery of, you know, assuming that we have like, you know, a short a set of six hyperparameters that determines our personality. That's a short leap to make that I think is totally unwarranted, but it's a fun game to play, uh, to say like, Hey, my, my computer, my algorithm, my agent does have a hyper parameter list that I can adjust and create entirely different sets of behaviors. And let's try it. Let's see what happens. People say, oh, you know, the human brain is incredibly efficient. It runs on about 27 watts. And they're contrasting this to Sam Altman spending seven trillion on all of these GPUs. But I think a fairer comparison, though, is to think of us as a collective intelligence. And when we design AI systems, we're designing it at the macroscopic scale that we understand. So there are like these, these big agents, whereas in the world, of course, there's like all of these little microscopic agents that give rise to, to the big agents. 
And the reason I think that's important is, I mean, I can just give you an, an example from Max Bennett's book, A Brief History of Intelligence. I've been speaking with him, but he talks about how um, apes, for example, they kind of, um, they're quite Machiavellian. So, for example, if they, they start hiding the food from each other and then they can see where the other apes are paying attention and then they'll kind of like lead them down the wrong path and they'll, they'll hide the food and then they'll go and eat the food before the other ape gets there. And if you think about it, these are very complex skill programs which emerge and it's because their brains have this kind of, um, you know, a granular prefrontal cortex, which is like a second order simulation of the world. So they have a concept of another mind and they're predicting what that mind would do and then they're kind of circumventing what that mind would do. But unwittingly, they're actually sharing simulations, right? So by, by playing this Machiavellian game, the, the simulations are being shared and, and they almost live mimetically and they get passed down through generations. So you see like you have this very complex interplay and tapestry of, of behavior and simulation sharing. And at some point, it, it almost happens one level of abstraction up from the, from the agents. It's kind of just really um, diffusely embedded in, in the physical environment. I mean, how, how do you think about that? Um, I heartily agree. I mean, I think about myself as an agent, and if you had, you know, turned me loose at birth, I would not have lasted long. So I am definitely <laughs> benefiting from the uh, physical support and the emotional, intellectual, and everything else to like uh, totally weak and helpless to get to where I am. And even now, you know, you take away uh, any number of things on a bad day, and it's like that's it for me. <laughs> like I need, I need my doctor. Like I need, I need everything around me. I need people to show me how to do things. The um, we uh, and we're good at that. We're good at sharing that. We're good at picking up on that. If anything, that's like a good human superpower. And it doesn't even take thousands of years. Like it's fun to well, fun and uncomfortable to go to a country that you've never been to before, or even go to a new company. And you find that people have different ways of talking, different ways of interacting, different ways of doing things, different unspoken expectations. Um, and until you get in the rhythm, it's jarring and you're at a horrible disadvantage and you feel like you're on the outside. Um, and then once you do, it's like it clicks and it's like, oh, OK, I'm I'm part of this flow now. And and uh, it might be what we're talking about when we call culture and um, hmm. culture fit and culture shock and things like that. But uh, these the interconnectedness becomes really apparent. I think that it is sh short sighted to think of an agent as an isolated thing, which is great because it lets us off the hook when we're designing like artificial agents. We don't have to say like, great, now you have to solve everything on your own with no help starting from zero go. Um, it's a fun exercise, but, you know, arguably has nothing, no relation to what we do. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. It's almost as if there's a physical bias variance trade off just in terms of like the things that we can physically do in, in our environment. But the, the reason I bring this up is, um, I guess, like one, one school of thought is, you know, like that Black Mirror episode where there's all of these simulations going on and there's, you know, every single possible sequence of events is happening in, in a different parallel universe. And um, I was reading Philip Goff's book recently. I think it's called Why the Purpose of the Universe. And and he said, you know, that there's one school of thought, which is that everything is designed just to maximize the, the flourishing of humans. So there's a Goldilocks zone on all of these different physical properties in, in the universe. And it's almost as if there was a designer who just carefully crafted everything so that we would flourish in, in, in this way. And 
you know, the, the alternative um, view, of course, is that it's just like, you know, physical materialism and all of this directedness and agency just kind of came out of out of arrangements of material with physical forces acting on them. And it's just really interesting, isn't it? I don't know, like, whether is, is it almost a form of arrogance that we think we can design these super macroscopic agents and we can tell them exactly what to do? Whereas in 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 the real world, perhaps it's like because there is there's there's a population of different things going on, different agents trying different things and the winner, the winner takes all. But we almost kind of like we only pay attention to the to the winner, like a survival bias, and we forget about everything else. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely so. Um, we're we're getting into the part where uh, you know a couple of beers would really facilitate this part of the conversation. <laughs> um, I I feel like it's easy to forget uh, what it is we're trying to solve, or easy to to trick ourselves. Um, because once we are talking about like, well, I want to solve a general agent. It's like, well, there is no general. Like, what what do you mean? Like, do all the things, solve all the problems um, to, uh, you know, to horribly uh, oversimplify and misrepresent the no free lunch theorem. Um, it's like you can be very good at a small number of things or kind of like medium okay at uh, a handful of things, or you can be like equally terrible at everything. Um, those are all valid. Like one's not better than the other. What are you aiming for? What does intelligence mean to you? You know, there are certain tasks on which rats outperform humans. And so we will immediately dismiss those tasks as not requiring intelligence because we're intelligent. <laughs> so by definition, that can't be intelligence. Um, and uh, it is, it, well, talking about breaking things when you care about them. One of the things I love to do is to poke at the limitations of human intelligence and cognition and, and biases. And one of those things is like, we are remarkably good at telling a story to get to the conclusion that we want. And so some pursuit of intelligence feels like that. It's like, the conclusion is that I as an individual and we as a species are special. We are the apex of everything. Like no one's ever gonna out evolve us. We're gonna take over the universe. Like we are the ultimate. And we then do uh, justified reasoning to get there. So anything that challenges that gets diverted, gets caveated out, anything that supports that gets built up. Um, and so, uh, it, it, it's easy to lose sight of that fact that we have those gaps. Um, for me, those gaps are especially telling because they give hints as to wh what it is about this agent that like makes us able to survive in the world. So the benefit of something like that is to be able to tell stories, like to be able to set up a causal chain of reasoning to get to a result um even if it's not like a valid result like the ability to like build a model is something that probably this grows out of so that we can is probably part of this abstraction it's like yes i did make coffee here's the causal model that allowed that to happen this is now pulled up to a very abstract level I can hold that and then I can reapply that in a new situation. Yeah. Um, there is a, 
tangent to that, which is uh, I, I love the studies that show that humans are terrible at knowing why we do things. Uh, the carefully crafted uh, cognitive psychologists who are, are able to literally like, <laughs> like measure what's going on in the brain, measuring like uh, with, with very particular um, neurological uh, situations, neurological conditions can induce a behavior for a given reason, and then ask the person to explain why they did it. And they're like, oh, well, I did it because that's and such. And the reason is fabricated demonstrably, yeah. Um, yeah. but they believe it. And it makes me realize like most of what I do, I'm not aware of. Like if I'm walking and I stumble and catch myself, that's a very sophisticated behavior. I'm not even aware of it. Even the ability to stand upright. Um, if I'm holding a, 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 like a glass of pasta sauce and it slips slightly in my hand, there's a whole bunch of things that go on that I tighten my grip before it can even percolate up. Um, so, you know, if is that intelligence too? And if I'm not aware of that, like, is that me? Is that what I'm talking about when I'm talking about an agent or is that something different? And so trying to slice this finely around what's intelligence gets slippery very quickly. Whereas... If uh, from a me mechanistic point of view, it's like, hey, it's solving the problem. Like, it doesn't matter if it's a hardwired reflex loop. If it solves a problem that this agent runs into on a regular basis, then that's a win. Quibble about the terminology later. Yeah, I, that really resonated with me. I mean, first of all, um, as you say, intelligence is defined so anthropocentrically. Every single definition is is an anthropocentric definition. And, and also, when we think about intelligence in humans, we have this really bizarre, abstract, kind of um, westernized academic view of it, you know, which is uh, it's the ability to solve mathematical problems and, and stuff like that. And from a neuroscience perspective, it, it's laughable, you know, because even if you um, read Max Bennett's book and you, you kind of think of the um, the agranular prefrontal cortex as being a kind of simulation machine, like a second order simulation machine. So it's almost like people discount the physical forms of intelligence, like just standing. But but another form of anthropocentrism is, well, everyone can stand, so that can't be intelligent. So there's something about intelligence, which is to do with novelty. But as we were just saying, most of our intelligence is collective and externalized. So we we would be very, very simplistic if it wasn't for our infosphere and culture and, and society and, and language and, and so on. So then it's I think it's related to this notion of creativity and model building that, that you were talking about. So part of intelligence is about just making sense of the exponential amount of complexity in, in, your, in your immediate physical and, and social world. And part of creativity is about being able to build models you know, almost on a, on a piecemeal basis to explain some of that complexity. And then if you successfully share that simulation or model with other humans and it becomes embedded in our culture, then, then that's a beautiful form of creativity. But it doesn't happen very often. It's a very diffuse process. And most of the time, we are basically automatons, you know, which is to say we're just riding in the dynamics around us and, and we're being pulled more than we're pushing, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally agree. Um, the elevated notions of intelligence, you know, planning and strategy and being able to play chess or go or, you know, 3D chess if you're in Star Trek. Um, <laughs> That's, if anything, like, that's weird. The fact that you and I are talking about this right now, like, w we don't represent the, the, 
the bulk of individuals in the world. Like when I talk and interact with people, um, there are a lot who are, who are saying like, I, I don't care. <laughs> like what I hear is I'm an agent. I've solved the problems that I need to like have a pretty comfortable existence. Like, why are you bothering me with this? <laughs> so if anything, like we're maladaptive in the fact that we like uh, can't stop trying to like model things that, that don't practically impinge on our lives. Um, but the uh, the notion that like I mean at one time in the, in the Western anthropocentric world uh, chess was considered this like extremely yeah. elevated uh, you know display of logic and reasoning and now like the the meanest computer can beat any human <laughs> chess <laughs> and even Go which was like never going to fall because the possibilities were too endless like. It was, it's been so fun to watch that fall, uh, like just in the course of the last few years. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, there is, it's still an interesting problem, no doubt, but the holding it up as a paragon of like, what makes humans special? Like that went away really fast. Um, and, uh, what's fun to see is like, uh, if anything, LLMs have demonstrated that the ability to string words together in a very in any style you want, uh, in a very compelling way is just, it's, it's not unique to humans. I'm not saying it's not hard or not special or not valuable, but it's not unique to humans. So like a machine can do this too. It's like, Oh, well, hold on. Then either that means we're not special or uh, if I have a company selling LLMs, it means that LLMs are intelligent and we need to sell them and they'll, they'll do everything a human can do. Um, and uh, it's it's fun to watch. I, I love watching like the, the, I picture this big brick tower that is like the unassailable fortress of human intelligence. And like one by one, little demonstrations come along and like pick a brick out here and there. And we keep saying, oh, but you know, what's left? Like that's the real intelligence to refer to your no true Scotsman remark. Like there's always a new <laughs> definition that, that elevates it. And um, you know, I don't know, that's a fun game to play, but to me less satisfying than like, well, here's a new brick so far. Only humans have been able to solve it. If I could solve that with a machine, like that would be cool. Whether or not it says anything about intelligence is a different question, but it would be cool. And that's good enough for me. Yeah. I, I wrestle with the chat GPT question quite a lot and, and we'll kind of like segue onto transformers in, in a little while, but um, it's really, it's really weird on, on the one hand that it's very sclerotic, it's very static and, and boring, but when it first came out, it was remarkable. And this is talking to the the kind of the relativity or the, you know, the the anthropocentric um, definition we have of intelligence. So when GPT came out and I was an early adopter, it allowed me to um, produce prose like a TED talk. And it was very clever. It made me look very clever. And now, because all the text looks the same way, it makes you look quite stupid. And, and I now re resent that type of prose. It's quite funny, actually. There are so many people who are going to cringe at things they wrote, you know, six months ago, as it becomes increasingly obvious you use ChatGPT. I um, I read a, a book review by Scott Aronson. There's like this deep learning theory book. And he spoke about how it helped unravel the mysteries of the deep learning landscape or whatever. And it was obvious that he used ChatGPT and, and it wasn't obvious at the time. But, you know, you, you spoke about chess as well. I, I think the bright line that humans have is creativity. 
and and in a sense you could say we're better than a than a chess algorithm because even though we can't beat it yet we have the capability to discover some source of brittleness in the future so we will beat it in the future it's only a matter of time um so yeah i, I guess i'm saying there's there's just something magic we have about creativity and and then you could think cynically as many did that chat gpt is going to pollute the infosphere it's going to make us lazy and it's going to kind of like you know just dumb down everyone but i'm now starting to think it might have the opposite effect i mean on on the on the one hand now it's no longer an advantage because everyone can use it Right. So, so now if you want to distinguish yourself um, amongst your, your fellow humans, you have to double down on creativity and it might actually make us smarter rather than dumber. Yeah, I, I like that take a lot. And I want to soften uh, something I said about LLMs. Um, I feel like they are an amazing tool. And I, when I saw the early results, it blew me away. And yeah. like any great tool, like it's got good use cases. I imagine a world where I'm trying to write uh, business communications every day in Mandarin, which I don't speak. Um, and if I had a tool that could take my stumbling attempts to learn and make it into flowing prose, um, even if it sounded stilted, even if it sounded like a machine wrote it, but it was intelligible, like I would be really grateful for that. <laughs> and and uh, and I see that as being one of the really good use cases for LLMs. Um, so, but you know, when you use, when you take a screwdriver and you try to use it like a hacksaw, like you look dumb. So using a tool for what it's good at is is an art. And if you extend past that, that's, that's when you get into trouble. Um, creativity, is uh, I, I like pushing on that. I don't know how to define it, um, but what I know is a, uh, I have an internal sensation. It's almost physical, but it happens often when I write, when I have these mental, um, like it feels, it feels like racetracks or wandering paths, you know, words, ideas kind of chasing each other. And then I put the words on paper and it's like, ah, that's not quite right. And I adjust them uh, two or three times. And then I make the final adjustment and I'm like, that's it. That was the thing that was uh, inchoate in my head. Now it's there. It's, it's not physical until I print it out, but it feels physical. And there's almost like a, a physical sensation in my chest that goes along with that. It's just like, well-being, satisfaction. It's like, okay, I made a thing. That thought in that form didn't previously exist in the world. And now it's there. So I feel that when I make a, a physical thing, it's like this physical thing has never been made before. And it wasn't even clear in my head what I was making before I started because it was an interactive process of trying something and it didn't work several times before dialing it in and then you nail it and there it is. And it's like, oh, it's, I, I made a thing. Um, so for me, the best definition I have of creativity is that sensation inside. And for me, it is almost always the result. It doesn't happen only in my mind. Um, it happens as a result of interaction with something physical or some anal analog of physical, but interaction with the outside world where I get to, to tweak it observe the result and then feed cogitate on it and then go back and tweak it again until 
somehow something clicks and, and that's there. If I could set up a, a robot or an agent to engage in that process or do that, um, I, that would be a, a really big, really big win. I know it's it's so interesting, and um, I guess one one take on creativity is that it starts off being an individual thing. So all babies are creative in the sense that they can conjure a novel skill program, novel to them, but it's not novel socially because other babies have come up with it. And then and then there's the social test of of novelty, which is you've um, happened on a skill program which is completely new everywhere. ChatGPT is a really strange beast because it's designed to minimize entropy. It's designed to be boilerplate. It's designed to be boring. But it's driven by people. And we are all over the place. I'm in the UK. You're, you're in the States. And I have a very different social world to you. You know, I'm, I'm connected to different people on, on Twitter and so on. So, so there's a very serendipitous sampling of information. And then on top of that, I have a brain which is doing all of these like random simulations and, and so on. And, and I kind of come up with this idea and I stick it into the prompt of GPT and GPT is still pushing on me. It's saying, no, I'm trying to make this more boring. I'm trying to make this more boring. But, but in the prompt, I'm extending it. I'm saying, no, don't make it boring. You know, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And it's like a battle. But the remarkable thing is like counterintuitively, there is some, you know, novelty and entropy there, but you just have to push really hard. So the notion of entropy is uh, something that I think about uh, pre-ChatGPT, just like autocomplete. Um, it's autocomplete, you know, it gives you a very reasonable next word. And with enough, enough context, it can, it can flow very nicely, you know, leading to ChatGPT. Um, but some of the most interesting writing is things that always surprises me a little bit. It's where they take a pat phrase or a pat idiom and they substitute in something different. It's not too different or that would be jarring, but there's like this sweet spot where it's like surprise me just enough and it makes me feel delighted. It makes me feel a little giddy. It makes me feel a little smart. Like, hey, this is witty repartee, even though I'm just a passive partaker in it. Um, and uh, so like one hack, if you want your, you know, to, to level up your writing, um, go in and create a doc and use the, uh, the autocomplete and, and like half the time, choose something different. <laughs> Whatever it suggests, don't do that. Um, whereas ChatGPT, like it tends to do that thing or it tends to sample from the most likely thing. So yeah, it flows. It's the river that like, gets down into the valley and follows that path. Like deliberately, like knock it out of one valley into the next. Um, you don't want to just generate a random string of words because that's too much entropy and that's not satisfying, but just the right amount just kind of tickles something in our brain. It's the, the, uh, characteristic of a lot of really good jokes. Like it leads you up and there's a predictable storyline. And then the end is something totally different than what you predicted. And something about that just like elicits a laugh. Um, so when you play that game subtly in writing or in any sort of behavior, then um, it feels human, it feels organic, it feels intelligent when you talk to someone who, you know, uses uses words you don't quite expect, but in hindsight, it's like they just really fit. And um, and I like I like doing that. Uh, it forces you also to think about what you're trying to say, 
like the lowest common denominator for human behavior is to always do the next thing, to engage in a, like exchange greetings with the exact same script every time. If you take half a breath and you just observe and like think about what you're saying, uh, you can like deviate from that really quickly. The world is huge, it's infinite. And there's no reason that we have to stay in this track just because it's familiar. And, you know, talking about ways to assess intelligence, maybe that's not a bad way. Like how quickly can we jump tracks and adapt? And how is that related to creativity? Why is it that people don't like the chat GPT pros? And a lot of it is because people like... Um, they like you to be present. They they like conscious attention and and thought and 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 you know part part of novelty is is me actually being here with you and you know what I'm genuinely experiencing and and feeling. I'm kind of broadcasting that over to you and it's this wonderful um, didactic exchange. And you kind of sense that if if you're becoming an automaton, it's the same reason why we don't like robots in in a way. We don't think they're human because there's some automatic component to them. And even humans, ironically, are automatic in most of their cognitive activities and we try and sort of make ourselves more present and, and make ourselves less so so um yeah i wonder if that's a, a part of it and also what you were saying um uh, made me think of the conversation we were having earlier about um this kind of pavlovian reinforcement learning you know a bit like a dog and that's part of the reason why chat gpt has this really annoying way of of talking about things because it's rlhf fine-tuning um you're inadvertently um kind of solidifying its conversation style even though you were actually trying to align it in terms of how long responses it gives you and what it can and can't talk about. You're inadvertently kind of crystallizing this annoying prose because of that mode-seeking uh, behavior. So it's just so difficult, isn't it? As you say, as you're saying earlier, you 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 want it to do more of that, but you're you're inadvertently making it do more of the the. Have you heard of that Waluigi effect, by the way? Uh no, no, but I need to know about this. Very quick point on that. So that was, you know, Bing GPT regressed to a kind of petulant teenager very quickly. I don't know if you remember that. And they say it was because the petulant teenager persona was so close to the actual persona that they wanted it to. So RLHF wasn't shaving the but the teenager away and it would kind of regress to the teenager and then you couldn't get it to come back again. And it's just it's just a classic example. It's so difficult to kind of it, it's almost like the, the worst form of alchemy, isn't it? Trying to bend to these things. I feel like that's so um not to wax too misanthropic, but you know, sometimes we make something, it's like, we want to make it human-like and we do. And we're like, that's horrible. Like, why would, why would we make that? It's like, well, there's a lot of people that behave that way. So, you know, maybe, maybe we don't want it to be entirely human-like. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, why don't we move over to Transformers? So I was reading through your beautiful article on, on Transformers. And, and of course, um, I, like you, um, uh, grew up with Jay Alamar's beautiful um, illustrated Transformer piece. And you've really gone to town. So you've you've gone to the absolute fundamentals with, with um, going through every single part of Transformers. And could you talk to that a little bit and also just kind of explain to the audience how you understand Transformers holistically? Yes. Um Yes, yeah, so huge credit to Jay and uh, a couple of other early Transformer resources, including the original paper um, I referred to extensively when trying to build my uh, understanding of them. Um, and uh, yeah, we start with dot products and matrix multiplication. The assumption is, I mean, 
if you are new to computing, you can walk through this and get a sense of what's going on under the hood. It pulls back the, the curtain and you can see the wizard flipping the levers and pushing the buttons. Um, if you care to, it's quite long, but there's a lot going on. Um, but the idea was to expose, like, this is not magic. Um, it Transformers are the enabling technology of all of our ChatGPT and all of the LLMs. Um, they're the, the engine. They're the part that makes it do the amazing things that it does. But you can peel back the layers of this onion. And when you're done, you have a handful of nuts and bolts. They are additions and multiplications and a couple of other functions that are very well defined. And you put them together in this very clever way and you get this amazing result. So as, you know, mechanical engineer at heart, someone who enjoyed working on cars as a teenager, like I love being able to break it down to its little bits and pieces. Once you do that, not only is it no longer mystical, but then you can start to understand how to make it better. You can understand where it might break and you can shore it up and you can put the guardrails in place. Um, a very simplistic way of looking at it, this is the intermediate representation higher than the multiplications and additions, is what transformers let you do is if I have, they work on sequences of anything, but we use words or pieces of words, um, if I know what my current most recent piece of word is, we'll just call it a word, and I know what the last few dozen or few hundred or few thousand words were, then I have this collection of models that are voting and are saying like, well, this word that I saw, you know, 50 words ago, when it comes before this one, then here is the set of words that I think might come next. And you add this up over all of the other words that come before this word. And then you get this big voting process and very crudely stated, it chooses the, the mode or like the most common one, the one with the most votes. Or you can tweak that a little bit to be one of the few with the most votes. Um, transformers, not to oversimplify them, they add a lot of nuance to this. They also learn when I'm looking at this word which words should I keep an eye out for previously? Because they matter the most and which are less likely to be relevant. Um, it also doesn't look at just the most recent word, but it can look at like the word that happened two or three words ago and compare it to what came previously. So, and all of this is not an all or none. There are like, uh, instead of just zero or one, it's everything in between. So it can pay a little bit of attention to some and more attention to another, but you'll get pretty far just by thinking about it as a, what's the current word? What's the previous word? What's likely to come next? And then the way that it learns, this is the big benefit of shoehorning it into matrix multiplications, is that it can make a guess about what's gonna come next. And if you're feeding it an ongoing string of words, you can tell it what actually came next and say, hey, did you get it right? Is this something that you thought was likely to happen? Is this something that totally shocked you? Depending on that, you can adjust those predictions so that the next time you see this, you'll be a little more likely to predict this next word. So that's the mechanism of backpropagation, which uh, the, a lot of the cleverness in doing this is not just the logic, but also making it 
differentiable, meaning that you can make small changes at every step along the way, and it will result in a small change in the output. And so when you notice that your output is a little bit wrong, you can reach back and readjust all those knobs and make small changes all the way back so that that output becomes just a little more likely to happen in the future. And uh, by having a big existing string of text, you can help your transformer predict that text more likely. Um, when I see a word and I thought it was probably gonna be that or one or two other words, like that's a win. That's not an error. When I see that word and I was not expecting it at all, that's the, that's the high entropy situation. And so uh, it tends to minimize that entropy, minimize that, uh, that confusion that results from that. So whatever you train it on, that's what it will be most likely to predict. The choice of what you train it on, therefore, becomes very important. <laughs> if you train it on the text of a lot of petulant teenagers, you're going to get text that sounds like it was written by petulant teenagers. Um, and if that's your goal, that's a win. But if that's not your goal, then you need to choose something else. So if you train it on Reddit, you're going to get text that sounds like it was written by random Redditors. If you train it